Welcome to Leverage Masters, airing weekly on Tuesdays at 12 Eastern and on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Leverage Masters hosts Jack Humphrey and Gina Gaudio-Graves discuss leverage strategy with guest leveragists. Be sure to subscribe to Leverage Masters in your favorite podcatcher for great tips and case studies on using leverage to achieve your biggest goals much faster. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Leverage Masters. I am your co-host, Gina Gaudio-Grace, and along with my co-host, Jack Humphrey, we are the co-founders of TheLeveragists.com and Divizio.com. How are you today, Jack? I am well. How are you? I am fantastic. I'm so glad the warm weather has returned to Florida. (laughs) <laughs> Some would say it never left. Oh, it sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad it's not 45 below anymore. Yeah, was that fun? Not at all. Not interested <laughs> in weather that cold. I have limits. Oh, that's too funny. At least you didn't have the frost quakes that Chicago had. Yeah. Or all the other weird things, the loud snapping noises and basically the That's sounds of the end of the earth. Were. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> weird. Well, well they'll be well I'm prepared. hoping, I am hoping that we have a huge treat for everybody today. Not here yet, but he should be soon. Why don't you tell everybody who we're expecting as our guest today, Jack? Alrighty, well today we are honored to have Michael Gerber, who's a true legend of entrepreneurship. Inc. Magazine called him the world's number one small business guru, the entrepreneurial and small business thought leader who has impacted lives of millions of individuals and hundreds of thousands of companies worldwide for over 40 years. Michael is the author of the mega bestseller, The E-Myth Revisited, and five other E-Myth books concerning small business and entrepreneurship. Additionally, he's written 14 industry-specific e-myth vertical books that uh, co-authored by industry experts. Michael dispels the myths surrounding your own business and shows how commonplace assumptions can get in the way of running a business. He walks you through the, step in the, life, the steps in the life of a business from entrepre- entrepreneurial infancy through adolescent growing pains to the mature entrepreneurial perspective, the guiding light of all businesses that succeed. Uh, do we have Mr. Gerber in the studio? Not, e- not yet. He then shows how to apply the lessons of franchising to any business, whether or not it's a franchise. Finally, Gerber draws the vital, often overlooked distinction between working on your business and working in your business. After you've read the E-Myth Revisited, you will truly be able to grow your business in a predictable and productive way. How about now? Not yet, but you know. I don't have anything left. (laughs) We can definitely talk a little bit about the e-myth and the impact it has made on entrepreneurs internationally, right? It was such a huge success, and it, it really did change how people did business as small entrepreneurs and small business owners, didn't it? 
Yeah, that on your business or in your business stuff, that's really where that started, isn't it? It really is. And such an important lesson, huge, huge way of getting leverage, right? Working on the business instead of in the business is all about leverage. Yeah. It's tricky, though. It's it's nice to say, but it does it does need a book uh, and a little bit more explaining to to figure out exactly how that works. If you've ever been in a situation where you're like, well, I understand what people say when they're talking about this, but you're in that rock and a hard place where your business is growing, but it's not grown enough to be able to get on top and work on your business yet, and you're still a little bit in. You have a foot in both worlds. It can be a very tricky situation that I know a lot of people have to kind of navigate. And if they don't navigate it right, they can go out of business. Oh, yeah, big time, right? Yeah. Let me not, see uh, if this is a message about our guest. Is he coming? He's pulling yeah. up in the limo. He is He is coming. Awesome. He got stuck in pretty much, Pretty much every entrepreneur I've ever known has made the mistake of working in the business before figuring out what it means to work on the business. Right, Jack? Don't you see the same thing? Yeah, and it's, it's subconscious, really. I mean, you're the one. It, it, it all starts with you. And transitioning from that you to uh, growing out of that, being the one everywhere, touching everything, doing everything, um, sometimes you just don't even realize what the problem is. Sometimes, you know, I've seen you get on the phone with people, and they were completely unaware. They were thinking it was this, it was that, it was this. And you're like, dude, you're still just totally working in your business. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're just you're like you got to let go of the reins. You got to know which reins to let go of. You know, you're the voice. Be the voice, and everything else needs to be. You know, somebody else needs to come in. And I've seen that unlock an awful lot of people, and let them go on to really dominate after that, and free themselves from that problem. Well, and I've even seen business owners, big business owners, like. Uh, people that are still doing, you know, 15 to $20 million a year kind of level that are still working in the business. I can only imagine mm-hmm. how different their numbers would be if they worked on instead of in. Yeah. Well, oh. it's fun to turn those guys loose, isn't it? Cause yeah. They have, they have well, the ability. If they're at that level, it really blows up after that. We have an unexpected change to our plan. Apparently, Michael has had an emergency come up this morning, so we will be joined by Leo Hefner momentarily, who talks about his debt-free mastermind. Can't wait to see what that's about. Well, that's always I think it's about living but... debt-free. Yeah. But I'm told Michael Michael will be with us next week. Okay, we'll get him back. Let's see if this is Leo. It is. This is Leo Leo Hefner. Hefner. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And unfortunately, I don't yet have a bio for you. 
So I'm going to have to ask you, could you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your business is all about? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Leo Hefner. I live in San Diego. Um, I run a debt-free private real estate equity fund. Um, I am also uh, running a mastermind that is in the um, designed around the, the way Napoleon Hill would run his. So they're not seminars. They're actually masterminds. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, got two kids, grew up in Hawaii, and here I am. Nice. What island in Hawaii? Uh, actually, I grew up in Hanalei, which is in the North Shore of Kauai. Know exactly where oh, it is. That's where I got, where I got married. Oh, fantastic. Oh, is it? <laughs> yep. I'm dying to go back. It's It was a wonderful, it's a beautiful island, a very quiet and peaceful one. We were sitting at dinner on our wedding night, and we it was hard enough to plan everything up to the wedding. We hadn't really thought about nightlife or having any fun. And apparently Kauai at the time was not the place to go for nightlife. <laughs> and uh, and the, we asked the waiter at the restaurant, which was about to close, and it was still sunny, and it was like the last thing open, um, <laughs> Where do they? What do they do for fun? And they said, "Well, we usually get on a plane and go to the Big Island." <laughs> so I was like, "Dang it!" So, but yeah, I mean, now I want to go back for that peace and quiet. And I don't know if it's the same as it used to be. You can tell me. It's it's changed a lot. How long ago did you get married over there? Uh, about thirteen years. A lot changed, but in Monterey, okay. <laughs> because they still have the little one-lane bridge to get there. It's busier, you know, some of the restaurants have swapped over, you know, but for the most part, Hanalei is still Hanalei, yeah. which is good. Well, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing, yeah. <laughs> well, we start everybody off with the same question every week, and that is, we heard a little bit about yourself, but what are you excited about? What got you out of bed this morning, raring to go, in business wow. or personal? Okay. So, yeah, you know, it's... Kids, family, that's that's the biggest priority on, you know, in my life, making sure that everyone has the freedom to do what they need to do and be who they want to be. Um, You know, but it's business. I get super excited about what we do. And, you know, it's it's a combination of doing well unto others and still being able to give back and still being able to have a very good, viable business where everybody wins. It's, you know, there's there's not too many people I think who can get out of bed and say that they have they have a business where everybody wins. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about that. What's it like um, working with you as a uh, client, or um, you know, how do you help people? So, the real estate fund that that I run is a is a debt free private equity fund. It's a Reg D five hundred six C. It's uh, it was designed after the last crash and there was such a transfer of wealth that a lot of people lost a lot of their money. They lost a lot of their assets where they were buying. I know a lot of people that owned real estate that lost real estate. And it was all because they were over leveraged, which leverage can be a good thing, having mortgages and bank loans. But you know, if, if you don't follow the market timing and you deleverage and pay those loans off before the crash happens, I mean, it's cyclical. You should be able to be able, you should see when those things are coming and be able to unload your debt 
accordingly so that when it does go down, you're not, you're not just caught. So we buy cash flowing residential real estate in the Midwest, and we don't use any loans at all. So what does it look like for our investors and people that work with us? You know, they get to, they get to invest in real estate without the headaches of having to deal with tenants and toilets. Um, it's a done-for-you scenario uh, where they get to partake in all the cash flow of all the assets we have, not just a single property. And that pool of assets continues to grow, and we're unleveraged. So the economy can do whatever it's going to do. We're not correlated to the stock market, the interest rates, or really anything else that's going on. So there's always cash flow coming, and there's nobody to tell us any different. I love the idea of uh, being in real estate without the toilets and the and everything else. <laughs> That's the the thing you hear the most about, though, when you're out uh, surfing around and you run into some real estate stuff. It seems like all anybody is doing or teaching is buying properties and and scrubbing toilets, <laughs> you know, and painting and and doing all that stuff. It's refreshing to hear another side of something else that people are doing with real estate instead of just the same old thing. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting. I mean, I hear, I was talking to a gentleman the other day at a, at a men's group that, you know, at one point he had, I don't know, 15 houses around the United States. And, you know, it was interesting. He was, he was chasing the deal. So he didn't have two houses in the same town anywhere. And he didn't like using property managers because they were costing him too much. So this guy was burning all of his profit, all of his profits going all over the United States for 15 properties. And it was funny. Wow. I asked him, I'm like, well, why didn't you just buy everything in one town? Well, I never thought of that. <laughs> really? He said, yeah, I, I was, I, I'd hear of a good deal and then, I'd go check it out and I'd buy it. Never even occurred to me to just stay in one town. Huh. Interesting. (laughs) So it's that there's a lot of things in real estate that are common sense, but actually more uncommon sense. Yeah. Well, and it's, it seems like it's shifted so much in the last 10 years um, in, in from a layperson's outsider view uh, I remember when people talked a lot about how uh, your home was one of the biggest investments and one of the best investments that you could ever have uh, in your life and part of the American dream and everything else. And I don't know what exactly happened uh, other than the crash and, and people are still not over that. And the economy really still isn't over that. The housing market in places like where I live is about identical as it was when it crashed. And I think that's the way it is for a lot of places around the country. And, and I just don't hear the chatter as much as I used to. And I wonder all the time about where it shifted. Like, what is the biggest, greatest investment? Is it still property, maybe on the level that you're doing it, but is it also true for just homeowners in this day and age? Or has that truly shifted? And if it has, will it ever go back to what it used to be? Well, you know, it's funny. I was I was in lending for a long time. And when that last crash happened, I would see people in their home, different, okay, you own a house, but you also make it your home, right? So all of a sudden the crash happens, they just bought it, they're upside down, and they don't want to pay the mortgage even if they can because now there's no equity in it. 
And I would talk to some of these yeah. people and be like, so you live there. You're raising your kids there. In 20 years, when they've gone off to college, won't you have equity then? Well, yeah, but well, I'm, I'm negative now, so I'm just going to walk away. And Oof. ruin your credit, move the family. It, it, it's, it absolutely blew my mind how many people I was running into that did that, just walked away from their home. And, yeah, personally, I believe that your home is your long-term domicile. Who cares what the equity is because you're not going to need the equity until you're old, right? In the meantime, you're actually paying for yourself. You're paying for your retirement. You're paying for something that will be a tangible asset, even though nobody – you buy a house today. I mean, the market's still going up a bit. You'll be – you'll have equity, but in a year and a half. You may not, but who cares if you're raising your kids? Just be there. It's about the school district, the neighbors, the people around you, having a place where you're comfortable that you can still go and call home without moving around. And that couple thousand dollars a month is actually going back into your pocket, whether you're going to realize that this this year, next year, or in 20 years, you're going to realize it at some point. Your home shouldn't be your primary investment. Right, right. That's a very nice way of looking at it. I'd never heard it explained that way before. And you can probably tell much how much of a layperson I am <laughs> in this world. But I, you know, as a homeowner, I think about that stuff quite often. And it's just like, man, we we got into our house just before, and everything was just going great. And and I guess we started looking at the investment side of it a lot more because of of the incredible upside it seemed to have the decision to do what we did at the time that we did it. Nobody knew anything yet was going to happen. And, and maybe that's just a carryover from that period because I never traditionally really thought that much about it. I need to live. We need a place, like you said, to raise the family and be in the right location in school. Uh, it, it was when I realized how much everybody else considered their house such an investment. Now you went radical. I can't believe somebody would just go, we don't have equity in it now. So we're just, well, that was, that's insane. I mean, I didn't know people looked at it that much as this is just a place that we are making money off of. (laughs) We don't look at it as a anything else. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I didn't have that attitude, but when I was doing a lot of refinances after the crash, you know, I was talking to a lot of people of like, well, you know, how's my credit now? Cause I let my house go. And so that's where I was hearing a lot of those stories. And it just, mm. you know, and I think about my family and the older people in my family and how long they have their homes. And, you know, as I started getting more into market timing and watching the real estate trends, there's always been ups and downs always. And this last one was, I think there was a, a there was a different light on it. So, you know, I mean, there was there was these these crashes happened in the '90s as well, but I, I yeah, don't know yeah. for some reason there was more of a there there was more of a limelight put on this one because people went to jail and big banks were were getting you know were were putting the little guys. This is what was funny about the crash that always kind of blew my mind is the bank said, well, we have to loan money, so let's make a loan program where people can lie on their application and we'll give them a loan. And then when they got caught in that, they put the guy that sold the loan, who they told to sell this loan, in jail for selling the loan. It's crazy. Oh. <laughs> you yeah. know, and nowadays, liar, those liar loans are back. 
You can go to any number of lenders and tell them you make, I don't know, $400,000 a year and you're going to buy a million-dollar home with nothing down, and they're like, okay, great, thanks. Here you go. I mean, the same kind of lending is back again. That's a kind of a loser strategy. I don't know why they do that because they know those people are going to, wow, that's crazy. I guess there's all kinds of mechanisms for somebody is going to make out on that kind of thing, but it certainly isn't going to be the buyer. Though uh, so they shouldn't be lying or anything, they're not exactly the victim. But yeah, there are a lot of victims in between, and then somebody else that actually runs away with a little bag of cash, like the Monopoly guy. Well, it's the bank. I mean, think about it. You can go out and buy a house with three and a half percent down, thirty-five hundred dollars on a hundred thousand dollar house. Put that down, you can buy a house. But actually, you don't actually own the house. The bank owns the house, but they're allowing you to live in it as long as you continue to make a payment. So mm-hmm. you think about who actually controls the houses in, in the nation, actually anywhere in the world where there's a bank involved, the bank is in the most secure position you can be in. So the more money you come down with, let's say it's still a $100,000 house, you come in with $75,000 down. Bank still is in first position. They are still in the safest place. The only way you can be in that position when you buy a home is to pay it off. Wow. You know, that, that started me thinking that you have a little green hat with a feather in it on your head. You, you, your fun <laughs> and everything that you're doing sounds a little Robin Hood-ish. Hey, you know, it, <laughs> it, it kind of is in a way. You know, um, we do some lending, and it's outside of just buying houses. We are also the bank on some loans, but, you know, we pick and choose. But, you know, it really is just about safety and security. You know, it was the the safest way possible I could figure out to people buy into the world's greatest asset that you can never make more of, real estate, and – not have it in a position where it can be taken away. And it's just, it, it seemed just so easy. Well, let's just do it with no debt. Done. Yeah. It's the no debt part, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, you got to, and it's really hard in this system that's set up to um, go anywhere in this world and do anything in it uh, without being faced with the dilemma of if I need to do this next thing, I'm going to need a loan. It starts right. with college. I mean, <laughs> we get trained very, very early that we – and it's so funny that people don't understand. I never had a clue what I was doing when I was getting my loans and uh, grants and, uh, you know, working jobs and everything. But nobody told me what I was doing exactly. They were just like, here's this money that's available, and when you're done with college, you'll start paying it off. And I'm like, Cool. Music to the ears of an 18-year-old. <laughs> I don't have any. Yeah, yeah. I've never had any consequences. I don't plan on having any in the future either. So let's do this. <laughs> and then, yeah. yeah, you just get into this culture. And I love talking to people with companies that, yeah, you can be the bank. You know, and, I mean, we can't just be exactly Robin Hoods and live outside the system totally. You have a system that you have to work within and, one of the opportunities, but it's the ethics of how you do it. I think that very, very greatly in uh, between, you know, your typical 
bank and how a typical bank operates and uh, maybe companies like yours who really are working with a more of a mission. You know, I, I hear banks say some of the things sort of like what you just said, but I don't believe it for a second. I, it's just totally generic, like pharmaceutical company ads for pills and stuff. You just, you don't believe it. And it really should come with a whole list out of a 30 second commercial. I think bank commercials should come with 28 seconds of side effects may include inability to pay, uh, getting over your head, you know, and they don't, and that would never happen. I don't know how we ever got it over on the pharmaceutical industry because they're just as powerful as banks. Some would say they're more, uh, but they're not because <laughs> they have to have that commercial where they said, take this, it'll make your eyes open, and the rest of the commercial has to be all the other stuff. I think banks should have to do that too. Exactly. Yeah, those, those are, yeah, and a lot of the side effects are the same. You may crap yourself, yeah, you may diarrhea. die. <laughs> Look at that bill. Oh, my God. I have explosive diarrhea now. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not the side effect you were thinking of, but. Yeah. No, no, it was. It was. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, you had no idea what you were getting yourself into today, did you? <laughs> nope, nope. I got the call, you know, at this point, what, 15 minutes, two minutes before I got on the phone with you guys. Hey, you got and an she didn't warn you about us? She didn't nope. warn you about us. <laughs> I don't, honestly, I don't even know your name. What is your name? Tell me a little bit I'm about Jack. you guys, please. <laughs> I'm Jack. I am the co-host. Gina is the host, and she kind of sits back and waits for her moment. She kind of just sits there like a cat waiting to pounce. On the Sometimes I jump in. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it's trial by fire. So, okay, so what are some of the challenges in your business? This is uh, a show about leverage, small business owners, um, entrepreneurs listen to this show, and they're always gleaning for little bits and pieces of wisdom that our guests have learned. And one of the things is it's, you know, your company, as, as I mean, every company struggles. Every company has a goal, something you're working really hard toward, that next thing. What are some of the challenges that you're facing right now and uh, what kinds of things are you doing to overcome those challenges? So it, it's, I have a little bit of an interesting outlook. Um, you know, I have been an entrepreneur for many years. I've had a company, you know, go through a hostile takeover from one of my partners. Um, you know, I've, I've shouldered that debt and have been very deep in the hole and have worked my way out. And, that's the school of hard knocks that teaches you things that you can't learn anywhere else except in the trench when you're getting beat down. Um, so some of the challenges that I have, I don't really feel like they're challenges. It's just another thing that just more or less needs to be handled because at the end of the day, none of the issues that I have in business are going to disrupt me, disrupt the family, or really have a significant impact on the business if I get ahead of them and deal with them as opposed to, well, I don't want to do that. Let me just turn the blind eye on it and I'll put it off till tomorrow. That's probably yeah. the biggest thing that I've learned in business is stay ahead of the issues, just deal with them as they come up and you can really keep them from getting too big to have an impact on you. Well, you learn a lot about being behind the issues as well. Like what are some of the things that, you know, taught you this lesson 
because, I mean, a lot of people don't get out of certain situations. It, it, that last issue is the last issue they had in their business before they closed their doors or it was mightily crippling or set off years of recovery. And it sounds like you've been through some things. How do you deal with things when they get ahead of you a little bit and, or a lot of it um, that saw you out at the other end on top instead of, you know, in a completely different country running away from the law (laughs) or, you know, uh, a completely different profession and just completely just changing everything because you went out of business. You didn't. How, what makes you different? You slow down to speed up. You know, when things start getting ahead of you, people tend to panic. And when they panic, they make more emotional decisions, more irrational decisions. And you sometimes have to slow your mind down and re-engage in this game of chess, which is really what it is. So you mm-hmm. become more effective in your choices and more effective in your words because you're not coming from a place of panic or fear. You have to get outside of that to then be able to deal with the issue at hand. Yeah, that's very good. That's a great answer. It reminds me of someone we had on uh, last year who uh, just in his personal life, it takes a lot of challenges, risks, stuff like that. You know, long bike rides after having no experience, bought his first bike and then signed up for a hundred miles, something or other. And, uh, we talked about adrenaline. We talked about that moment of clarity. Like if you're falling off your bike, there is a reality of it's just a few seconds and you're hitting the pavement and you're rolling. But there's also that moment where time seems to stop and everything is slow. And you can recall those moments where it seems like you, the bike's tires rolling really slowly or, you know, and you're just falling. And, but there, there's that moment of clarity you talk about when you slow everything down is priceless, isn't it? I mean, it gives me chills just thinking about it. I'm not having a moment of clarity. I'm actually not, (laughs) I'm on the other end of that spectrum right now trying to get this out, but it just seems like uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful world to train yourself to get into when you get into a scrape, I would imagine. It it absolutely is. You know, um, one of the things that we're dealing with right now uh, in the fund is one of our property managers out in Tennessee actually um, forged my signature and sold one of our houses last year um, illegally. And, you know, as I've been talking to other people, nobody I know has actually ever had this happen. So, you know, there is there's nobody I found who can actually counsel on the proper way to do this. Everyone just has their opinion. And it's it's everyone's very freaked out by it that I talked to like, Oh my God, you know, you just lost a house. Well, no, not really. I mean, then you break it back down. Well, no, it's a forgery. I didn't actually lose a house because I can just undo the deed and somebody's going to lose money. Most likely the lady who bought it, but what are some ways that she doesn't lose money? We can still recuperate the money. And so our investors are good. And then in the same time, take care of the property manager who did this because, I mean, he's looking at 15 years for, you know, it's a classy yeah. felony. And his office guy, who is the, who is the, uh, the notary, who notarized it, well, that's identity theft. He's looking three to five. So how do we go about structuring all of this? Again, it kind of comes back to the game of chess. We don't want the lady who bought the house to lose her money because it's not her fault. My investors aren't going to lose because I have all the cards. So how do we make a win-win and still 
have this guy pay everybody back that he stole money from? And then how do we keep him from doing it again in the future? So <laughs> it's kind of like we, we forget that uh, everything to this point in our lives has worked out. Otherwise we would not be where we are. We wouldn't have food in the refrigerator and a car to get around. And if things had not worked out to this point and to this point, there've been a lot of, you know, it depends. I think it's an age thing. You have to go through so much stuff. Like you mentioned that, that, I've been there and I've done that. I've been through something like this. And even when you're met with an unfamiliar situation, what you learned in the situations before prepared you to handle this the way you did. And how do you, so what if you are younger and you have not had as many experiences and everything to you is, is like new and shocking and, oh, no, we're going to die, like everything, the amygdala is just firing and all cylinders. How do you help people or talk to people uh, to get them to understand what you just said, I get it because I've been through some stuff, but is it possible to translate what you've just said to someone being highly effective in those kinds of situations who doesn't have that experience to pull from? Yeah, I think first and foremost, those people that you're going to, that are younger, they can't be your kids because you know your kids don't really listen to you when they're in their 20s, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, that's, um, it's interesting you brought that part up because that's, that's kind of where we, where the mastermind got started is everybody, no matter how old they are, has learned things and experienced things that they don't know are valuable to other people. So as we started this mastermind and had people start coming through, people are having challenges that, you know, they don't know how to deal with. And you've got a group of people that may have are learned about your scenario or have experienced what you're going through and actually kind of become like a personal board of advisors to be able to help guide people through these challenges from a place of counsel and experience as opposed to opinion and fear. Yeah. So being able to have somebody recognize the situation they're in and actually be open to scenarios to be able to deal with it from an open mind and an open heart is, is very important. Maybe that's why people, uh, like I mentioned earlier, uh, love to take challenges and step outside their business and personal daily lives, their rituals and everything, and, and stretch and expand and just work those muscles. What do I do in this situation? I don't really know how to kayak, but I am flipping over right now. How do I, I okay, i got to calm down and listen to this safety thing again that we just had before we got in the water and or I'm going to die <laughs> you know and, and my, that might be extreme stuff but I've, I've run into lots of people over uh, the years who do similar things who do things like that it might not be a physical thing it might be a business thing it might be something but they I think people who are really successful learn that you have to constantly challenge yourself you have to do something to you know stay out of a rut and, you know, don't get too much into your rituals that anything can be a cold splash of water on you at a certain point because it's disrupted something you're so used to doing all the time. Yeah, and I think it's also important for uh, people with the knowledge and experience to share what they have because that helps them understand what they're doing at a deeper level and be better. You know, a good example yeah. of that, uh, yesterday... Uh, I met a dentist who he's been, I don't know, 30 years, long time. The guy's been a dentist forever. 
Um, and we were talking a little bit about masterminding and he's like, well, several times a year, he and a group of other dentists will go through and do work on case studies for bizarre dental issues. And there's dent, there's surgeons, there's endodontists, there's plastic surgeons, there's regular dentists. There's a whole group of different types of dentists that are, go to these and they all share what they would do in these different scenarios. So they get to hear from other experts in the field. They get to share their knowledge and the younger people get to absorb it all. And I, I thought that it was very interesting that this guy had the level of knowledge that he did and he was still very active in the educational community for dentistry as he was. I just had no idea. I didn't know dentists did that. And I, it was great. Yeah. And you're lucky because you have kids, so every day is an adventure automatically for you. You don't have to climb Kilimanjaro. You just wait for the next shoe to drop in the house, right? Exactly. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the spread on the kids is pretty big. I mean, the, the oldest one's 26, the youngest one's 11. So getting to watch the inner dynamics between them and to see, you know, when the older one's acting like the littlest one and the littlest, littlest one is coming from a place of wisdom and talking like she's the 26-year-old, you're like, man, how did that just happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also weirdly different than when we were growing up because I, I have uh, just got my uh, 12-year-old his first drum set, and he had already done regional honor band, shown a lot of interest in music and things like that, and um, started hinting around about wanting to play drums, which made me super happy. That's what I did. I played drums. And uh, I'm sitting here watching this kid who is mastering things quicker than I did, and I'm already projecting very shortly into the future him surpassing my best. You know, a couple of years is all it takes now for kids to do what took us a lot more years. And I think it's just because of that sharing this world has a lot more tools for sharing. It, you know, it has a lot more just masterminds in it, but it also has social media, YouTube. You can, you know, the best drummers in the world are giving free drum lessons on YouTube. I had no access to anything like that. I had a guy who got a couple of local awards and went to college, uh, <laughs> you know, and was just, you know, doing drum lessons to pay for college. And now these guys have world-class, so it's, it's crazy. And then older and younger siblings, it's just, I don't know, we seem to have shifted a little bit, it seems to me, from my perspective at least, that it's just much more of a sharing world, a sharing, like a sharing economy, just um, we, we are built to do that. And I think that's why people understand what you're offering, right, and understand that there's a value to that. Yeah, you know, it's, um, it, it's interesting. When I, it, it, the world we live in, there is so much data, so much sharing, so much information available at everyone's fingertips that the younger generations are definitely, I think, a little bit more apt to be able to absorb it all. Um, and, you know, it's, there's a lot of people that when we talk about what we do in the fund, they don't get it. You know, they're like, well, the stock market made 12%. Okay. But the risk is where? Tomorrow? The cliff? And, you know, we've heard people say that, you know, I would in, we'd invest with you, but it's not sexy. Okay. So 6 to 7% annualized right now with an upside of 12 to 15 isn't sexy. 
okay, whatever. Because there's a lot of people that are still out there looking for those big hits where we're looking for consistency and safety, you know, so yeah. it just depends on the where 80s. people's mindset is. Yes. It, the 80s are still alive and well. It's almost 2020 with that attitude. And then you've got this stalwart, uh, Buffett, who, who, who made up boring and investing and put those two words together and became one of the richest men in the world in the doing of it and talked about patience and all that kind of stuff. And it is really weird to, to share a world where that should probably have a much more dominant presence in people's minds when they're talking about investing in things, yet it doesn't. And yet you still run into people like that who, you know, just good, solid investing just doesn't turn them on. It's almost like well, yeah. a, you know, want to dive out of a, a plane without a parachute for the adrenaline rush. Well, and I think that ties back to, you know, what we're talking about is so much information being available today. So because there is so much information and because the speed with technology and information is, is moving, that people are looking shorter and shorter down the road for their investments. So instead of people looking at, well, Let's see, I'm, you know, 22 and I'm just getting into this job. So when I retire, when I'm 65, I'm going to have, you know, X amount in the bank where people are looking at what am I going to get tomorrow? So they're not looking for that 5, 10-year, 20-year return. They want it now. And I think that's where a lot of people in investing are, are kind of missing the boat where, you know, there's less and less people now that are taking a portion of their investment portfolio and putting it into those long-term, more stable, consistent assets. And that's all we ever people ask are, for people to, when they invest with us is just just take a little part that you don't that you're not really willing to lose, and move part of that over. Diversify. People aren't really um, having a good time in this this world that we. On the one hand, we tout all of the wonderful things about how the how the social sharing, the science, the information sharing, the openness um, that we've achieved in in uh, so many things that used to just have gatekeepers, um, and it just seems like it's a societal thing, uh, and it's sort of global in any of the first world economies at least, where people expect everything fast because everything else does come fast, but it ha- it comes at a cost. Because now you, they're making stupid decisions about their investing based on this world they live in where everything comes fast, and this should too. And that's when really weird things start to happen. I mean, you can't lay that kind of responsibility or, or pressure on a stock market that came from a completely different era. <laughs> you know, like what about all the things that they're, they're still struggling with with all the bots that are trading? You laid that yeah. technology over the top of something that's an ancient thing. People used to hold their hand up in the air to buy a stock, you know? <laughs> and now this and that wasn't that long ago. 5,000 tons. Yeah, yeah. And, but, you know, and, and we don't have time to slow down and deal with that. Like, I've, I've watched that struggle, and nobody doesn't seems to be any closer to any sort of a solution that I can tell. And nobody has any time to because there's so many other things going on. We've loaded ourselves down with so much time on any one thing if we're not careful. So right. then you have people who get off social media, hey, I'm taking a break, you know, and they're trying to do these little stopgap measures to just bounce back a little bit to some balance 
you know, with real world stuff and things that aren't as sexy. They like everything has to be a magazine cover now. That's what Instagram is. You know, your life as a perfect person <laughs> and everything's going great. Look at my new house. Look at my new property, you know, that I paid thirty five hundred down for. <laughs> but it looks good, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> So, I mean, you it, it, in the old days, it didn't seem like you had to be a, a business owner so in tune, um, or it couldn't be, really. But if, if it was offered to you, you wouldn't see much of a sense in being in such in tune with what people are doing in their daily lives, how they think about investing and spending and, um, you know, buying courses, buying consulting and coaching, things like that. You, you wouldn't have the ability to look at all the data that's now available. And therefore, you kind of operated in more of a vacuum. Um, it seems now it's just very, very different. And having conversations with you, I just imagine you and I having a conversation 10 years ago and it going very differently just because it's just such a different world now. You have to care and really know about what people's uh, situations are and their, you know, what they want to do, and you have the ability to gather that data, their personal lives and their goals and everything else, uh, and also mitigate everything going around. It, you know, if they're trying to make a decision, I would imagine to invest with you and then do it this way, you know, you've got to, you have to hammer down all these little uh, gopher heads that are popping up all over the place that are making them shy away uh, from a good decision. Uh, it just seems like you have to be a much more involved, like a sociologist <laughs> in, in business nowadays than you had to before, or were you always that way? So I actually don't data mine very much at all on any of the social medias. Um, I don't use them for business as much as I should or could. So our conversation 10 years ago probably really wouldn't be that different. Because the basics of what we do and why we care about the houses that we that we buy and how we take care of them, none of that has to do with social media. It has to do with just basic conservative investing and, you know, being good stewards to the people that are, are living in our houses. And I, I honestly, I don't really do that. I mean, I do a lot with social media, but I don't base what I do on social media, if that makes oh, yeah. sense. Well, good. Yeah, one of the reasons you're still in business. <laughs> right, yeah. and yeah. you know the, go- I mean, it, it, the, little, the little gopher heads that pop up? I love questions. You know, when I have a new investor that's coming in and they have a bunch of questions, it makes me better. And if they actually stump me on something, I love that because it means somebody thought of something that maybe I hadn't or I hadn't put the – the the thought to to figure out what that answer is, which is just going to make our operation better. So, you know, I love those. The more questions somebody has when they come in, the better. I mean, yeah, some of them can be scary questions, but I mean, whatever. You know, it's yeah. you operate in a glass house. You answer the questions, and you know, everything's everything's good. What What is the attitude in general with the people that you're talking to uh, and that you serve? It's in terms of, well, maybe not the attitude, but the, any kind of a shift in the belief system of, the you know, in the 50s, 
we were going to be around forever. We were a brand new comp, uh, country. Everything was optimistic and shiny, and all the companies that existed were growing. Nobody was going out of business. Stocks were going up. Everybody was getting their house. I mean, there was never a brighter, sunnier day than in that period of our our country's history. Certainly nothing after that. And it's continually, you know, the, the outlook, I think it's partly because people have access to way more than just three channels of news. Um, and it's a constant barrage of, hey, you know, this thing over here is going bad. I'm talking in terms solely of investing. And, like, people's mm-hmm. feeling of security in the future. Uh, and you've been doing this long enough to probably have a good angle on that. It, has it changed? Um, you know, and, and is, that bring, is that taking people to more – you said, is it prominent that there's a lot of other people that don't think it's sexy enough, they don't want to do conservative investing, and they, they want to get theirs now? Is it, is it because of a worldview, in your opinion, that things aren't going to – we never know when the next bad thing is going to happen, the next crash is going to happen, and it affects everything, so I want mine now. Is that prevalent, or is that an outlier? Well, it, it's the actual thought process, I think, is an outlier. But because of the global economy and how everything is so tied in with each other um, and the amount of information that's out there, I feel that actually a lot of investors are confused. There's too many choices. Mm-hmm. There's, there's too many what-ifs. And a, a lot of people only want to stick with what they know because that's safe. That's you know, we only invest in the stock market. Everything else is too interglobally connected, and it's scary now, um, which I don't blame them. I mean, the way the, the, way the economy is and the way the, the world operates, I mean, the U.S. dollar goes up in value, and, you know, people in Thailand start running out of, running out of ways to make money because their dollar plummets, and inflation goes up. You know, so the way our economy affects the rest of the world and how the the world's effects ours is, I mean, it's, it used to be complex back when I was in high school, when the crash was coming, we'd see it in New York. And in two years it would hit Hawaii. That's when we would feel those, those financial ripples. Well, now it's almost everything happens synonymously. You know, something happens. How do you you navigate that? How do you, how do you help people understand If this is one of the questions I'm asking you, uh, and I, you can tell, you can see the fear in my eyes. <laughs> how do you help them calm down about that or, or feel better about how, what do you even do in that situation? Well, for the way we invest in what we do, we're not, we're not really tied into that whole mix. We don't, what, how we buy houses doesn't really matter how strong the dollar is. It doesn't really matter what's going on over in Europe. Um, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the stock market. I mean, we buy portfolios of houses from banks, from other investors. We buy onesie twosies from people who, you know, are been sitting on a house because, you know, a family relative died and they need to unload it. We buy it. Uh, I mean, we help a lot of people when we buy these houses. I mean, we always, because we're looking for the win-win. So, and because we don't have the banks, it doesn't really matter. So I, break, I try and break it down into the simplest terms of, okay, so you're right, global economy is scary. But what we do doesn't really hinge on that. It doesn't have a, have a tie on us. Um, well, That's what do helpful. we do when the federal government shuts down and people don't get their, their, their Section 8 checks? 
Well, they'll get caught up. So in the meantime, those people, we're not going to kick them out. They'll just pay less rent, which means your return's going to go down for a minute. But we didn't put kids out on the street. And when their Section 8 money comes back in and the government fires back up, we'll just, we'll just get caught up. It's no big deal. It's okay. We don't have a bank to, to answer to. So hey, there's that Robin Hood cap again. Just flip right. back on your head. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it, that was a conversation it, it, I had with our property managers a couple of weeks ago. I'm like, what's going to happen with, uh, with you know, the VA housing assistance, Section 8, and, you know, Social Security for these people that are in the houses? They called me up and asked me that. I'm like, what if they don't get their checks? I'm like, don't worry about it. Don't kick them out. Don't even send them hate mail. Just send them a letter saying, hey, you know what? Thanks for we understand what's going on, and we'll get caught up when everything normalizes. No big deal. Now, wow. if they don't come back up and get everything squared away like they should, then we'll, then we'll deal with that when the time comes. But in the meantime, don't put that as a stress on them. They have to feed people, and they, got, they still have to live. It's cold out there. Well, I mean, I, what you're describing is, I wish it wasn't surprising, and it's it's supposed to be the way things work, right? And, you know, I mean, people talk about that, but I think there was a collective eye roll across the country. Yeah, right, nobody's going to do that. You know, these guys are screwed, and I love it. I, I hadn't heard a story like yours during the whole thing, and I didn't know if there was one. That's That's the scoop of the day right there for us <laughs> is that you guys did that. That's amazing, and congratulations, and... Thank you for that. Yeah, I mean, that absolutely. Attitude, I think it's going to make a company a lot more stable and uh, able to to handle anything in the future. You know, uh, that really matters. That corporate uh, culture and and everything is a really big deal. It's something that people look for. It, it's something that uh, many articles have been written about, about millennials who will just make decisions about companies they want to work with, whether it's a bank or anything, based on what that company believes in. And first of all, whether that company believes in anything other than making money, that's the number one. And if they find that, they're gone. And lots right. of studies have been shown to uh, that they're a different creature when it comes to who they do business with. So another good point for, for you guys. I think what you're describing actually is the new sexy. I don't understand what these investors are talking about when they say that because it's the rarity is what you're talking about. Because the whole world seems so chaotic and all the other investment things that you could be doing, I think conservative uh, returns and everything are the new sexy. It seems like that should – it seems like the people who get it probably really love you and really, really love you. Like, oh, finally, somebody who's talking to me about something, I want to be protected. I want to go someplace where I don't have to worry about it and lay awake at night wondering if my investment just tanked, you know, like Bitcoin yeah. <laughs> something. Right. Just crazy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, and, it, and it feels good on my end, too, you know, knowing that, you know, that, that there are people out there that have houses and rental houses and, all they see is just the monthly income. They don't care about who's in the houses. They don't care about the houses themselves. And they won't, they won't fix a roof. If there's a leak, they'll replace one shingle to fix the, fix the roof instead of just fixing the roof, right? Just replace it. Just be done. Never have to worry about it again. Nope. They'll, they'll go up and replace two or three shingles, throw some spackle on it, whatever, call it a day. 
And, you know, it's like I, we just keep looking at it as people are like you and me are raising their families in a house because they can't afford to buy a house. So they're there. Why make them suffer? Everything will work out. And again, I, yeah. it comes back to the point of because we don't have to answer to anybody. We don't have to answer to the banks. We just have to answer to ourselves. You know, and yeah. are we being good people? Are we being good stewards? And do I mean, it's people first. Without without people out there, we wouldn't have a business. So without renters, we wouldn't do, be doing what we do. So take care of them. Again, common sense, it should be anyway, but I don't believe that that's actually true to the definition of common. It's not common. I don't know why. But I love yeah. uh, when guests like you come on and speak some truth and at least let me and our listeners know that there are people like you out there. And I know there are a lot, but we don't get to talk to them all. We only get to have one a week. And uh, I'm so happy that we had the time. I want to ask you, uh, before we have to go, what do people need to do to find out more about your company and what you offer? Um, How can they get in your sphere of influence? So if they Google Leo Hefner, I'm easy to find. Um, the, the, the website for the fund is South Bend seven, just like South Bend, Indiana, the number seven.com. Um, do do I have a a moment for just a quick origin story? So people will help remember what that website is. Absolutely. Okay. So when we started South Bend seven, which is this private equity fund, um, I was flying out to Chicago to go see a buddy of mine. And I was sitting between two guys that worked at a regional bank, loss mitigation manager and the facilities manager. One guy foreclosed on houses. One guy took care of the, the problems once they got foreclosed on. They had seven houses left in their portfolio for the whole bank, and they were in South Bend, Indiana. So I went down, took a look at all of the houses, met the whole crew, met the team, and ended up buying them, which is how we got named South Bend 7. Again, uh, common sense nice. name for just a cool origin story. It's a cool name, too. It's like, that makes sense. It sounds maybe like a jazz band, too. Right? <laughs> awesome. That's awesome. Leo, thank you. thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today at such late notice. That was a, a really great conversation. Well, thank you for the invitation. I really I, I enjoy being here, and thank you so much. So you're definitely all kind of people doing business the way that we teach entrepreneurs to do business. So great example, guys, of how to do business the right way. And Jack and I will be back next week, same time, same place. Have a fantastic week, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Tune in next week for another episode of Leverage Masters. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook on our Leverage Blackbook page to keep up with the latest. We'll see you next time on Leverage Masters.